may be seated. <clears throat> psalm 51, the first three verses, <clears throat> really the whole psalm is about uh, David's repentance after his affair with Bathsheba. But he tells us these words, and, and, and we identify with David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Let's pray. God, we, like David, have committed many sins. Things that we're ashamed of, things that we've hidden, things that we don't want the world to know about, but things that are very real and things that, things that come between our worship of you and, and your holiness. We make no excuse, Father, we have no plea but guilty. And we say, forgive us. Forgive us and wash us from our sins. Wash us thoroughly and we will be clean. Purge us. We look to your son, to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith the one who is seated at your right hand because he finished the job of purging our sins. And we claim his merit. We claim his blood. We claim his righteousness. And we ask for forgiveness because of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing our last song.
So things are just a little bit different here today, obviously. Um, but we praise God that, that we can come together and we can worship. And he can be just as pleased with our worship the way it is today as he can uh, with a full band uh, behind me. So uh, praise God for that. Well, things are looking a little bit different today, and actually a couple reasons. Um, we're going to do our assurance of pardon, and then after our assurance of pardon, we are going to take our offering. And this is different from what we normally do. Normally, at the end, we have um, a time of giving, and Kaylee just realized she forgot. You can come on back up, Kaylee. It's okay. Um, uh, but we're doing things a little bit differently now. Where we're actually going to pass a plate, and some people may think it's old school. Some people think it's made, maybe think it's traditional or too old-fashioned, uh, but, but here's the conclusion that we've come to, is that we want to make sure as a church that we are emphasizing that our, our giving, it, we are not doing this so we can get more money. Do not feel obligated to give now because there's a plate in front of you. That is not the reason we're doing this. Uh, in fact, Redeemer doesn't have a problem with people not giving. Like we, We're okay in that respect. That's not our, our purpose behind this, but we want to make sure as a church that we are not giving um, our offering and our tithes, we're not, it's not an afterthought for us. Um, we want it to be something that we include in our liturgy as a part of our worship because we believe that it is, in fact, an act of worship. That as we go through our liturgy and we have a time of uh, confession, and we have a, an assurance of pardon, and we are recognizing who we are before a holy God and the magnitude of what it is that he's done for us, a part of our response to that in worship is to give. And that's what the Bible has commanded. It's, it's not just something that is born out of tradition. It's what we're called to do out of, a, out of a heart of worship. It's the same way we sing and lift up our voices to God and dedicate that to the Lord. We also dedicate our tithes and offerings to the Lord. So that's the reason we're, we're changing this up. We're going to do our assurance of pardon first, um, and then we'll have our moment of giving. But I wanted to tell you guys a little bit about why we're doing this. Um, so our assurance of pardon today says this. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we have redemption forgiveness of sins, the riches of God's grace has been poured out upon us. Praise, Praise to our God, who has chosen and made us his own. Praise, Praise be to God, who has forgiven and cleanses us. Praise, Praise be to God, who blesses us beyond our imagination. So if I could, I'll take Josh and Sean, if you would come up, our ushers. I've got the plates right up here. And... I will pray for us real quick, and then we'll take our offering. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much, again, Lord, for just the, the privilege of being together today with our brothers and sisters in Christ, the privilege of coming into, into your presence, God. Because what we do here is so much more than just getting together with friends for social interaction and for entertainment, God. What we do here is, is something that has ramifications and an impact beyond what we could ever imagine. So we recognize that, Lord. We recognize that you are here with us today. And, Lord, we ask that as we have our time of giving, that just as we've said, Lord, that it would be a time of, uh, and, a, and an opportunity to respond and worship to, to you for the great things that you have done for us. Lord, all of our money is merely uh, uh, yours anyway. You've just given us stewardship over it. So, Lord, may we be faithful in worshiping you through our giving in this moment. In Jesus' name I pray.
children's memory verse for today. It is Matthew 28, 19 through 20. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, observing, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then, uh, as you guys know, we have finished our New City Catechism. And so, last week, and now again this week, we are uh, reciting the Nicene Creed, or the Apostles' Creed. And if you would, I think it's all underlined. It's not all underlined, but if you would, I would love if you would read this with me. Uh, we can recite it together as a church, as our creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Alright, and now if you would, turn in your Bibles, if you have those with you, to Luke in the fifth chapter. As we are progressively making our way through Luke, uh, taking a few breaks periodically. We have just been, I know I personally have been so blessed hearing Matt and Sean and Robert uh, preach through Luke and getting able to be a part of that myself. It's really exciting. such a beautiful book. Uh, and the most exciting parts of Luke, I think, are, are hearing the way and seeing the way Jesus interacts with the people around him in such an, an amazing, profound way. Um, it's just amazing. So uh, if you would, read along with me. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 32. Excuse me, Matthew, not Matthew. Luke chapter 5. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees said, Oh, excuse me, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at him and his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I don't know about anyone else, but I really need to come to the Lord in prayer right now and ask for his grace today as we open up his word. Father, again, come to you. God, things don't always go the way we want, but God, your word is still mighty and powerful and has the ability to cut to the deepest parts of ourselves, dividing even bone and marrow, your word tells us. So God, we rely right now on your word and the Holy Spirit to do the work here today. I pray that I might be an instrument Lord, but that I might merely be a tool used by you to 
preach your word, that hearts might be affected, and that we might see your glory through Luke chapter 5. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've titled my sermon today, A Tale of, of Two Hearts. And the reason I've done this is because we, we see in this text two different individuals. We see the, the one who recognizes his need for a savior, and then we see the Pharisees and the scribes. I want to give you guys a little illustration here. There was last year, this, was, this happened just last year, uh, there was a man who had cancer. He had, it actually started as prostate cancer, ended up becoming bone cancer, and this guy was living with cancer for years before one day he was in bed and like broke his leg. He literally wasn't doing anything. He was sleeping in bed and like rolled over and his leg just broke. And he went to the doctor and they said, yeah, you have a broken leg. And when they started to run tests and trying to figure out why on earth his, his leg broke while he was sleeping, they found out that he in fact had bone cancer. That the cancer had started as prostate cancer and, had, and he had not noticed it, it had gone unnoticed for so long, and it ended up spreading to his bones, and he had bone cancer, and then was faced with this serious reality of, of what to do next, and began chemo treatments, and, and therapy, and all these things. And the reason I, I want us to, to think about this guy who, who had cancer, and for years had no idea that he had cancer, is because there's a deadly disease that everyone in this world is walking around with, but only some even realize it. There's an entire world out there that is walking around with the disease of sin, and they have no idea. They have no clue that this thing is leading them down a road that is leading straight to death and hell. And it's the reality for everybody who's born. Everyone who's born is born with this disease of sin, and is born with the same reality of Unless they're able to obtain a cure for this, for this sin, it will lead to nothing but death and destruction for them. We see this illustrated through Jesus' interaction with the tax collectors and the Pharisees in our text today. And it starts with Jesus' call of Levi, or Matthew is, is what we commonly know him as, Jesus' disciple of Matthew. Levi was the name he originally had, and then he was given the name Matthew after he was converted. Uh, but when we talk about this guy being converted here, this is Matthew. This is one of Jesus' disciples. And what's amazing about this call of the life of, of Matthew, the life of Levi, is that he is about the most unexpected person you would ever think that Jesus would call to be one of his disciples. It's unexpected because Levi was one of, in that time, one of the worst of the worst of individuals. What does the text say he was? He was a, he was a tax collector. And tax collectors in that day were notoriously hated and despised for their wickedness and their treachery and their deceiving and swindling. There were not tax collectors that were known for their goodness. And the reason is because of the way the tax system was set up back then. Actually, before even this time, here's the way the Roman tax system was set up. If you remember, Rome right now is, is in control, and so all the taxes are being paid to Rome. And for a while, the way Rome was, was taxing the people of Israel was that they would divide everyone up into districts. And uh, each district, they would take bids on what kind of taxes they would gather. In other words, they would say, all right, who can get us the most taxes from this district? 
and different individuals would bid to try and be the one to collect taxes for the king so that once they made that bid, they had the obligation to pay Rome, to pay Caesar, that amount of money, and whatever else they gathered was theirs to keep. So it's easy to see how this could be a, a, a definitely an abused system where Rome was just like, hey, how much can you give me? And the highest guy's like, oh, I can give you the most. And they're like, okay, we'll do it. And whatever else you get, that's fine. Uh, and so it was just a, a blatantly abused system. And now the tax system had changed since then. That was a, a, such a horrible way to, to tax people. And they realized that pretty quick uh, that they did change it. But even still, even with the way it, it had been changed and was in this time, there was still so much room for tax collectors to abuse their power, to abuse their authority. There were, there were two types of taxes that these tax collectors were, were required to draw. There was the stated taxes, which were the kind of taxes that we understand, like um, property tax. You know, they would give 10% of all of their wheat, you know, whatever they grew, their crops. Um, there was uh, taxes on things that they would buy, um, taxes on the things that they owned, those kinds of things. Um, pretty common taxes that were not the ones that were very easy to abuse. But there was another kind of tax which were called duties. And this is where being a, a tax collector was where you could really kind of make your money and where you could abuse the system very heavily. Because these duties were taxes on like everything. They could tax you not just on your cart, but on the number of wheels that you have on your cart. They could tax you on um, coming and going from marketplaces. They could tax you, literally a tax collector, if you were to run into a tax collector on the road in this time, he could like stop you make you empty out your bag and tax you on everything in your bag and you would be obligated to pay him the money right then and there. Because this guy has the authority of Rome backing him. I mean, they're telling him to do this and giving him the authority to, to do this. And it was a system that was just grossly, blatantly abused by these individuals. So tax collectors were absolutely hated. In fact, in most Jewish synagogues, tax collectors were barred. They were not even allowed to come into the synagogues. And a lot of times they were even included with the unclean group of, of lepers. They would, they would be included with that same group. Like you don't associate with lepers because you'll be unclean. And you don't associate with tax collectors because you'll also be unclean. Because they are so wicked and bad. This is how tax collectors were viewed in Jesus' time. And this is the guy that Jesus comes up and begins to call. Just to give you another example of how unfortunate like these kinds of individuals were and how rare an honest tax collector was, there was one Roman writer who wrote about a tax collector that had a monument built to him because he was an honest tax collector. Could you imagine having a statue built for, your, for someone because they do what they do honestly? That's how like, bad tax collectors were and how wicked and corrupt most of them were that if you were an honest one, you were like worth building a statue for. I kind of think about, if you've ever seen the, the cartoon, Disney cartoon, Robin Hood, I think about the sheriff of Nottingham, if you remember him. He also, he's not just the sheriff, but he also acts as the guy that collects his taxes on this, this community of Nottingham. He collects his taxes for, for the wicked King John, and, and you see him coming into the house of this guy, Otto, who's like crippled up, got a bad leg, and, and he comes in, and what's he do? He takes all his money. And, you know, he says, nope, you've got to pay your taxes. You're, I think he shows up and he says, your friendly neighborhood tax collector's here. And, oh my gosh, they just couldn't stand the guy. Uh, then he goes into the family with all the little baby bunny rabbits. And, and the boy gets a, a one coin for his birthday. And as he opens up his coin, the sheriff takes it and, and says, well, the family that, that uh, 
stays together, pays together, you know, and just this awful, wicked human being. You watch the movie, and you're like, man, what? this guy's such a jerk. Like, you, you hate the sheriff of Nottingham. Like, there's nothing about you that makes you like him. And that's kind of the way I think tax collectors in this time were viewed. The same as this sheriff of Nottingham was. I mean, nobody liked him. They were wicked. They were corrupt. They were seeking their own gain. Almost all of them. This was their reputation. This doesn't just happen because one tax collector is a bad guy. No, this was a reputation. Not only was there so much room for corruption and, and swindling, but to even be a tax collector, you have to basically be a traitor. You have to say, you know what, I'm going to work for the Roman government, the ones that are you know, exercising authority over us and that are uh, in, in dominion over us. I'm going to submit to them. I'm going to work for them. You know, I'm going to kind of buddy up to them. They were considered a traitor. Like this was, these were not good people. Yet this is the guy that Jesus has chosen to call. And he calls Levi or Matthew with two words. He says, follow me in verse 27. Jesus may have said more than this. We don't know. We don't know if maybe something was left out of the conversation here. But Luke, and in addition to Luke, Matthew and Mark feel that that's the only thing that's necessary to put in her, are these two words, follow me. And these two words seem simple to us, don't they? Follow me. It's not that hard. I mean, you, you, you go follow Jesus, right? But there's so much more wrapped up in these two words of follow me than what we might first realize. In fact, David Platt has written a whole book on these two words, follow me about the implications, the cost of discipleship. Because when Jesus came and asked Levi to follow me, he wasn't just asking him to come grab a drink with me and then, you know, whatever, you know, we're done after that. The call to follow Jesus is immensely greater than that. In fact, in, his, in David Platt's book, Follow Me, the, the call to come and follow me is a call to come and die, he says. What does Jesus say? He says, take up your cross daily and follow me. What does he mean when he says, take up your cross? He means, come and do exactly as I do, and I sacrifice myself for you. That's the call that Jesus is putting on Levi's life. When he says, come and follow me. We, there's this idea in our world today that people will take verses like this, follow me. They'll take verses uh, like in Acts, whenever Paul says to the Philippian jailer, after he says, what must I do to be saved? And, and Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will, be, you will be saved. And people take these verses and form them, fashion them into some sort of easy believism that says, you know what, all you got to do is say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, or yeah, I follow Jesus, and that's as simple as it is. You're, you're good now. You don't have to do any special things. You don't have to, uh, th there's no requirements after that. If you say those words, you're good. And, and we fall into this, this kind of, antinomialism where, where all you have to do is you have to follow Jesus or say you believe in him and, and that's it. Like There's no other expectations, no other things that, that ought to flow out of a life like that other than to say, I believe in Jesus. But the reality of it is these, these simple words, although these words are simple, have huge ramifications. Because when we think about what it actually means to believe in Jesus, does he just mean that we believe that there was a guy named Jesus? No. Historians believe that Jesus was a real person. It's not really an argument that Jesus was a real person. We know he was a real person. So to say, well, I believe Jesus was a real person, it gets us nowhere. 
To believe in Jesus means that we believe he was who he says he was. We believe that he was the Son of God. We believe that he has authority over our lives. We believe that when he came and died on the, sin, died on the cross, he died for our sin so that through him we can have eternal life. And if we believe that about Jesus, will we not dedicate our lives to serve him? It's, it's only a natural next step that once we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, once we believe he is the son of God, once we believe that he's done the things he said he did, that he died on a cross and then he rose three days later, that will affect the way we live. If we believe that, then we have to believe that he deserves authority over our lives and he deserves lordship and that we ought to serve him and obey him because he's God. Not to mention the fact that this call, even in our text, also includes repentance. As we see at the very end of the, of the passage, it says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke thinks it's important to add this word, these words to repentance in here. And the same event that's documented in Mark and Luke, they don't add these words to repentance. But Luke thinks it's important that we know that this call to follow Jesus is a call to repentance. If you think that, that following Jesus means that you don't have to worry about confessing your sin, it means that you don't have to worry about the things you've done and, and you can do whatever you want to do because, hey, Jesus paid it, you know, he's got me covered, I'm good, I'm not obligated to be holy, I'm not obligated to confess my sin. Luke's saying, no, this call is a call to repentance, to confess your sin, to turn from your sin and to follow Christ because he is Lord. That's the call that he lays down in front of Levi. And we see the response, starting in verse 28. The response of the sick heart, that is. Think back to when Robert preached on verses 12 through 16 as he spoke about, about this leper that was healed by Christ. And this leper, while, while this story of Jesus cleansing this leper, healing him of his, of his leprosy is is an amazing miracle thing that he has done. And, and surely this leper is, is so thankful to be cleansed from his leprosy, this physical ailment. But what this represents even more, and what we need to understand, is that there's a leprosy of the heart, as Robert told us a few weeks ago. That our hearts are sick. Our hearts are messed up. Our hearts are broken. And Jesus here, in this passage, is saying, I have come to heal that sick heart. The same way Jesus cleansed this leper of his leprosy, Jesus can cleanse our heart of the sickness. So this is his response in verse, verse 28 and 29. It says, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Leaving everything, it says. Again, Luke finds it important to add this in here. This isn't in the other events of this story, the other documenting of this event. They don't mention that he leaves everything. It just says that he rose and followed him. But Luke wants us to recognize that the call to follow Jesus, whenever Levi, Matthew, received this call to follow me, he knew that this call was not something light. He knew that it was going to cost him everything. In fact, he was willing to leave everything. And tax collectors made good money. I mean, they made it in a bad way, but they made good money. And Levi likely knew who Jesus was. He'd likely heard of him. This, this wasn't his first encounter with Jesus. He had heard his teaching. He knew who he was. Not only did he know who he was, but he's seen his disciples. He saw what they had. 
Not only had he seen the lack of what they had, but he'd also seen the Pharisees and scribes that are in this story following Jesus around that are constantly at odds with him, that are constantly hating him, that are constantly ridiculing him. He sees all of this, and he sees what it's going to cost him, and he sees the value of following Jesus, of believing in Jesus, of what Jesus has to offer. And what's his conclusion? He concludes that what Jesus is offering him in discipleship is far greater than everything he has. He comes to the same conclusion as the parable Jesus told about the man who's, who finds a, a treasure in a field and in his joy goes and sells everything that he has in order to buy that field because of the great treasure that was in that field. Because it was an easy decision for this guy, knowing that this treasure was worth all this money, worth way more than he had, it was no problem. It says that in his joy, he sold everything in order to buy that field. Levi comes to the same conclusion. He comes to the conclusion that everything I have, my money, my standing, my comfort, all of it, it pales in comparison to what Christ has to offer. He knew the cost of discipleship, but he followed anyway. This man knew the value of what he was gaining and that it surpassed all that he had. Not only did he recognize the value, but he also recognized his need. There wouldn't have been any value here in what Jesus was offering if Levi thought he was okay. If Levi didn't recognize his sick heart, right? It's only because he knew, oh, I have a sick heart, and Jesus has the answer to my sickness. That's the only reason that he was able to be to, to recognize the value of what Jesus had and, and weigh the cost is because he knew his need was great for what Jesus had to offer. So the question we have to ask is, do we recognize the value of Christ in our lives? Even me, it's so hard for me to let go of things, to let go of my comfort, to let go of, of my money, to let go of what people think of me for the sake of following Christ. It is hard. But whenever I actually look at the value of what Christ is offering and, and the joy that is, is to be found in Christ, not in what my friends think of me, not in the money I have, not in the, the power that I have, but in what Christ has for me, it should be an easy decision. It should be a no-brainer. But so often we don't recognize the value of Christ in our lives. Even as Christians, we spend our lives complaining about this and that, what's gone wrong, what hasn't gone right. And there was a theologian that says this, and I tried to find who on earth it was that said this, but I will say Matt Chandler said it after him, so I can credit Matt Chandler with this. Uh, but it, it's like this. It's like we get a call that we have this uncle that lives far, far away, that was really rich, that died, and he left us as his sole beneficiary, and that we were about to claim three billion dollars and we're like all right what what am i gonna do and they said all you gotta do is come down to the to the bank and receive your your three billion dollars we'll write it up take care of all the stuff and and you'll be a rich man you'll be a billionaire and so we get in our car and we're like yeah i'll get my money and we're driving down to the bank and before we get to the bank we're, we're a mile and a half away and our car breaks down and won't go any farther and it's like we get out of our car and spend the last mile, mile and a half, walking to the, to the bank, complaining and kicking ourselves and grumbling and griping 
because we have to walk a whole mile, mile and a half, to get our $3 million. Like, this is so ridiculous. This is so unfair. I can't believe this has happened to me. My freaking car broke down. Man. But guys, don't we do that in our lives today? We have an inheritance coming to us that is beyond anything that we could ever imagine. In fact, take all the things in this life that bring you joy, and there's a lot of things here that bring us joy. I got to spend last night with my whole family, my nieces and nephews, ranging from like eight months old to six years old. And guys, man, we had so much fun. There is so much joy to be found in children, especially nieces and nephews, because guess what? They left after, after a while. So yeah, so much joy to be had there. But all the things on this earth that bring us joy are mere shadows of the joy that is coming, that is headed our way in Christ. Mere shadows, meaning they don't even compare. That's the inheritance that we have coming to us, complete and full joy in Christ Jesus. But yet we spend our lives complaining about what we have to do, about what's not going right in our lives, about how hard it is to tell people about Jesus, or whatever it is. And then, Levi's natural course of action is what? He throws Jesus a party. And verse 29 says, And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Levi responds in a very natural way. Hey, everybody, guess what Jesus has done for me? You need to come and you need to celebrate with me. In fact, you need to know about what it is that Jesus has done for me because he can do the same for you. This is such a natural response for one who has had his life completely rearranged by the Savior. Is that our response, though? Again, so often we don't rejoice the way we ought to and we don't tell others about the joy that there is to be found in Christ. But Levi did. He wanted all his friends to receive the same cure to the disease that they had as well. That's Levi's response, the response of the sick heart. But there's a second response, and it's the response of the hard heart, or the self-righteous heart. And that comes in verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes were grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? The scribes and Pharisees rejected Jesus because they thought they were all good. They had a pretty common a mentality that's pretty common in our world today. If you talk to people on the street, people who don't know Christ, people who don't know that they're sick, there's a lot of them that when you ask them, if you were to die, do you think you would go to heaven or hell? And they'll say, well, I think I'd probably go to hell. And you ask them why, and they think the same thing the Pharisees thought. Well, I've been a good person. I haven't done that much that's bad. You know, surely if you compare me to these other people, I'm way better than them. Of course I would be saved. I mean, I'm a good person. They think they're all good, just like the Pharisees did here. And they are completely and totally appalled that Jesus would associate with such people as he's doing. Tax collectors? Jesus, don't you know you're going to be unclean after you hang out with them? Not just tax collectors, but tax collectors and sinners? This is how they view these people, tax collectors and sinners. 
I think it's pretty funny the way they talk about how Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. Because they, so they didn't believe that they were included in this group of sinners, which is why they say that to Jesus in verse 31. Or which is why Jesus says to them in verse 31, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Because here's how the Pharisees viewed themselves. They viewed themselves, there's us, the righteous, and then there's the sinners. And I think it's so funny that they didn't want to eat with sinners, but every time they ate together, they were with sinners, right? I mean, what is it they say? Like, if there was ever a, a perfect place, it wouldn't be perfect once you got there. Because every single one of us, including the Pharisees, is sinners. So when Jesus says this, when he says, I didn't come to call, or excuse me, I didn't, excuse me, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Is Jesus telling the Pharisees that, well, you're fine. You're not sick. You don't have this disease. And so I didn't come to save you. That's the reason I'm not eating with you. Is Jesus telling that to the Pharisees? No, he's not. In other places, the things that Jesus says to the Pharisees are amazing. He calls them a generation of vipers. He calls them whitewashed tombs. Pretty on the outside, but dead on the inside. Jesus was by no means telling these Pharisees that they were all good. What they really needed to recognize is this group of sinners, that's the group they were in. And the hardness of their heart is the same reason that in chapter 18 of Luke, as we'll come to eventually, we see the tax collector standing in the, next to the Pharisee, the Pharisee praying to God, saying, God, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. I fast, I pray, I do all these things. I thank you that I'm not like him. And the tax collector who's not even able to look up to heaven, bows his head and beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what does the Bible say? What does Jesus say to them? He says, who was it that left and went to his home justified that night? It was the tax collector. He was the one that was justified because he recognized the sickness in his heart. But the Pharisee with his hard, self-righteous heart had no idea. He was blinded by his pride. This problem the Pharisees had, the problem they had, is that they were, they were very good at telling other people what was wrong with them, but they had very little desire to fix the problem themselves, or even to help them fix their problem. They were a lot like, there was this, this uh, car place here in town, I don't even know if it's still here, but it was, it's called the Answer Man. And the Answer Man offers free diagnostics, meaning you can bring your car to them and they will look your car over, run all the tests, and they'll tell you what's wrong with your car. And they'll do it for free, no charge. Well, my brother went there one time, he was having a problem with his truck, he brought it in, they looked it over, they plugged it up to their computer, diagnosed it, and they said, ah, we know what the problem is. You have a bad computer in your truck. It's, it's all messed up, it's not gonna work, you need a new computer. And he's like, okay, well, can you give me a new computer? They're like, nope. You can't replace my computer? And they're like, no, nah, we just diagnose. They're like that. There's, there's a commercial on TV, I think, where there's like a security monitor and like this bank is being robbed and there's a security monitor there. And they're like, oh, aren't you going to do something? He's like, no, no, I'm a security monitor. I just tell you when there's a problem. And then he looks down and he's like, oh, the bank's being robbed. Like, duh, Captain Obvious. But that's the way the Pharisees were. They're quick to look at tax collectors and sinners 
and identify all the problems they have and how wicked they are. But never once are they offering to help them. Not, I'm not going to associate with them. Then I'd be dirty. Then I'd be messed up. Can't do that. I want to get my hands dirty. That's why they were so appalled when they saw Jesus eating with them. The Pharisees had completely failed with their only purpose in life at what it should have been, and that's to help people know God. That was, the, that was the intent of the Pharisees, and that was their purpose, was to, to teach the people about the, the Old Testament and to teach them the law and these things in order to show them God, in order so that they might know God. But they had completely abandoned that purpose, completely left it, and instead saw their own righteousness and completely ignored helping the people. And by the way, Sidebar, there's all kinds of people in the church today that believe they have a very similar uh, ability, and that is to identify problems without ever trying to solve them. And I'm going to tell you guys, there, there's no such spiritual gift as a spiritual gift of criticism, okay? It's not a real spiritual gift. I know a lot of people think they have it, but it's not a real spiritual gift. The Bible never once mentions it. But yet there's a lot of people in churches today who are quick to identify problems, quick to identify what's gone wrong, quick to identify how it could be better, but never once trying to help or worrying about helping. So let us avoid that as well. But here's the thing. Every single one of us, every single person in here, falls in to one of three categories. The first category is that you may have a hard heart towards God. You might be like these Pharisees who think you're all good and think that if God is, uh, is a, a real God, then surely he'll look at me and know that I've been good and that I've done good. I don't need the help. I'm not sick. You might not have a high and mighty view like the Pharisees did, you know, viewing other people as subpar like they did with the tax collectors and sinners. But many of Many people in the world today fail to see the sickness in their own heart because their hearts are hard. And I want to tell you today, if you are in this category, you're not okay. You're sick. Until you recognize this, you will never be able to fully belong to Redeemer Fellowship Church. You'll never be able to fully engage in what we do here because Redeemer Fellowship, just like every other true gospel-centered church, it's not a museum for good people. It's not. This isn't where all the awesome people that have everything together come to display their awesomeness. We are a museum of the broken. Or excuse me, a hospital for the broken. We're not a museum, we're a hospital. The reality of it is we are all, every single one of us here at Redeemer Fellowship Church recognizes that we are sick and have this deadly disease of sin and that the only remedy for this sin is to be found in Jesus Christ. So God wants to soften your heart so that you might see this truth that we proclaim every week. The second category is that maybe you know you have a sick heart, but you simply cannot let go of your life to follow Jesus. You simply refuse. To you, I would say that you have failed to understand the value of what's being offered here in following Christ. 
And that what's being offered here is not a momentary bit of joy. What you're being offered here is not a life that's so great here on this earth that everybody wants a part of it. Matter of fact, I can go through an, uh, just a long list of Christians who have kind of lived pretty unpleasant lives here on earth. I mean, it's true. The Bible promises that to follow Christ is to endure persecution, is to endure suffering. It's true. That's not what I'm telling you here. What I'm saying is that there's a lot more to this life than just this life here on earth. Why on earth would we be so committed and so invested to live an awesome life here for this tiny little bit of time, tiny little bit of eternity, because that's all it is. This is just, this life here on earth is just a vapor. It's fleeting. It's momentary. Whenever all of eternity is at stake. Because it is. And to you, I would encourage, you need to recount the cost. You need to recount the cost of whatever it is that you're holding on to, whatever it is you can't let go. Because I promise you, the cost of following Jesus is worth it. And the value is far greater. And the third category is there's many of us in here that have given your life to follow Christ. But there's still things that you're holding on to, like I said earlier. You have yet to truly leave everything behind. There's still those things that you cling to, that you want, that you desire. And you have a hard time letting those things go. I would, I would encourage you, let go of those things. I would tell you the same thing I told the second category. Count the cost. And also, recognize that you have no power to heal yourself. All of us. Those who have been healed, it is not that we were some sort of special kind of person that we were able to identify our sickness and like come up to Christ and tell him that we needed the cure. No, the only reason that we have Christ is because he sought us and that he called us just like he called Levi. And he's the only one with the power to heal us. And then finally, I would encourage you, feast in his honor and invite all the sick people you can find to come and meet him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, it is so humbling to read your word and Lord to see myself in so many ways in the text of scripture Lord I see the heart of the Pharisee in myself so often Lord I can be so quick to look at others and identify their problems and ignore the problems in my own life and have no desire to help them with theirs God, I pray that you would forgive us of that. Forgive me, forgive anyone in here who has done the same. Lord, I pray for those in here who fall into one of these categories of, of either having a hard heart and not knowing that they need you, rejecting their need for you. Lord, I pray that you would soften their heart and you would help them to realize their need. And Lord, for those who just can't let go, God, I pray that you would reveal your glory to them. That they might recognize that, that eternity is truly at stake, Lord. 
Lord, I pray for anyone here that's struggling just with whatever it is, God. Whether it's problems at work, whether it's problems with family, whether it's anything else, Lord. Lord, you are the one who loves us and cares for us. And Lord, can not only cleanse our sin, heal us of this disease, the Lord also cares and loves for us just like a father does. So we thank you and praise you, God. Lord, finally, I want to pray again for Robert and Natasha. Lord, it's never easy to lose a loved one, but Lord, in such a sudden and dramatic way, it's, it's even harder, Lord. God, I pray that you would give them courage, peace, and the ability to, to lean into you and into your grace and your love through this time. As we sing one more song, Lord, I pray that you might be glorified again. Not because of how awesome we perform, not because of our voices sounding like angels, but Lord, because we're doing it from a heart that truly desires to worship you. I praise in Jesus' name. before we take communion uh, as we go through them pretty much every week but we want to remind you guys and, um, and have an understanding of the importance of what we're doing here if you are not a follower of Christ if the things I've talked about here today if you fall into one of the categories of a, of a, of a hard heart or uh, maybe one who knows you're sick but you are just holding on to something uh, we would ask that you not take of communion not because we want to call you out but because this is something that is for, for believers, for those of us who are able to come to the Lord's table as brothers in Christ and brothers with him. Uh, I would also encourage you, if you are not a member in good standing at a church, um, whether that's here or somewhere else, uh, we would encourage you not to take as well. And, and also, if you would, uh, hold on to the elements as they come and wait so we can all take it together as a family. And finally, if there is any sin in your heart, we ask that you would not take until you've had a chance to confess that sin, whether it means you need to go to someone and confess that sin, uh, and if you need to get up and go do that here, that's fine, or it may be that you need to wait and not take communion this week, this week until you can confess that sin and seek to resolve that and find reconciliation. Uh, so we would encourage you with those things, and if you would.
the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was with his disciples. He took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup. He said, this is my blood that was shed for you. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for what it is that the Lord's Supper represents. Lord, we thank you for the communion that we have to, with you, that we can join you at your table. That we can be with you in your presence because of what you've done. We ask that you might forgive us our sins, Lord. We might be faithfully and regularly confessing that to you and to one another. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Our benediction for today, since we've already done our giving moment. Oh, wait, we have another song. Let's stand and sing the doxology. sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Now, go now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Peace be with you. And also with you. You are dismissed and sent.